and welcome to The Flow, a podcast created by Taboo Period Products, a social enterprise that sells organic cotton products with all profits and advocacy efforts dedicated to ending period poverty. My name's Ophelia and each week I'll be in your ears with one of our Taboo co-founders chatting about the topics that Taboo cares about most, health, well-being, gender equality and of course, periods. On today's episode, I'm joined by Eloise. Hello. And we are taking a look back into menstrual history. So have you ever wondered where ideas like periods are unclean, women should be isolated on their periods, or periods are a sign of women's sinfulness originated from? Well, today we are deep diving into the history of the period taboo to explore its origins and how these ideologies still influence the way we think about menstruation. Stay tuned to the second half of the episode where we will be chatting with Associate Professor Beth Goldblatt from the University of Technology, Sydney, about how our legal system in Australia continues to ignore and thereby discriminate against menstruators. So to begin, Eloise, what season are you in? I am in winter. I'm day three of my period. Mm, You sinful woman. I know. Naughty. Burn her. Burn her on the stake. The witch. That'll make more sense as we keep talking, guys. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. um, So, yeah, I guess I feel um, great. I mean, I've got tampons. um, In excess of them, actually, naturally. Uh, So, yeah, very well supported. Nice. I am in spring and it's. Yeah, feeling great. I think this is going to be a good cycle. I learned from my last cycle that I need to listen to my body a bit more because I had some mm. really bad PMS right. symptoms, but uh, it's all part of the journey. It is. Yeah. And do you feel like you're better prepared for this season? Yeah, I think so. Cool. Yeah, I think I needed like a reminder that things can get shit sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, to kick off today's episode, we're going way, way, way back. To around 500 BC. Ooh, old school. Yeah. So a lot of what we're talking about today actually comes from this incredible book called Everyday Discourses of Menstruation, Cultural and Social Perspectives. It was written by Victoria Louise Newton and she's a research associate at Open University in the UK. Mm. And her book is just incredible and it helped us put together a lot of the key moments in menstrual history that Mm -hmm. have influenced the like taboo around this topic Mm. Uh, the book will be linked in our show notes and we highly recommend everyone just give it a read um, especially chapter two which is where we get a lot of our info from so we're roughly in around 500 bc and the book of leviticus which is a book of the old testament Mm -hmm. so like part of the bible Mm -hmm. um, has been written Ooh. so basically the book of leviticus taught that menstruation made women unclean that's kind of the beginning of where that idea of cleanliness came about Mm -hmm. and that their menstrual blood was a sign of moral and as well as physical impurity wow so like women got periods because we were terrible right right so that means that every woman is Sinful, yeah. Oh. Um, I guess. I mean, it's true all the way back to. Eve. I guess. Yeah, <laughs> you know, no one's perfect. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I feel like it was going to happen, wasn't it? Well, yeah. <laughs> so then, this impurity was also considered to be contagious. Oh. So anyone who came into contact with someone who was bleeding needed to be cleansed. Right. I did not look into what cleansing looked like because I didn't really want to know. Surely it's just like a bath. Yeah. Maybe like. Some incense. Yeah. I, I hope so. I hope it wasn't anything more. Yeah. You know what, maybe, oh, I was going to say, the guys you come into contact with probably be guys you'd want to hang out with if they they don't care about you menstruating. What, like if they 
came into contact with you. And they were like, oh, like, I don't care. But then other people were like, oh, <laughs> you're sinful. You're unclean. What? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, this book also recommends that women be apart for seven days because of the contagiousness of their impurity. Right. From um, everyone? Or? From everyone. Okay. So um, I guess that's that idea that's quite common. Um, I've noticed throughout a lot of different um, religions or cultures of this separation of women mm. on their period. Yeah. In some senses, it kind of is nice. Yeah. I've heard um, my auntie spent a lot of time in India and, and Nepal and she and I were having a conversation about it. And I was quite, I guess, you know, because my culture wasn't at all in tone that you should spend any time separate from anyone or anything when you're yeah. bleeding I thought that's that's you know shocking rah, rah, rah. and then she was explaining to me that the communities she spent time in all of the women really cherished those five or seven days they had apart because they I guess were in a position where their, their menstrual huts or the places they would retreat to were quite you know safe and, and warm and I think in some parts they were spending time with other women as well so it was almost mm-hmm. like a retreat from home and they didn't have their typical daily duties and they could actually spend some time with themselves yeah and then I guess in the season of a menstrual cycle that time you do kind of want some quiet time like you you know it does make sense that you do have that time apart but obviously that's not the culture that that we're surrounded in it's like we're adjusting to a men's you know world yeah Mm. I think what really uh, what I really realized when I was uh, researching for this episode is that there are so many different ways you can interpret certain practices or teachings, you know, like we were saying, you could look at it from one sense, like women should be in a hut away from everyone because they're contagiously unclean. Yeah. Or on the other end, it's like a menstrual retreat. Yeah. But it could could have, you know, it might speak for different purposes for different people. I think socially the reason they retreat is because it's considered unclean. Yeah. But I guess the women just make it you know a time for themselves mm. but it, yeah it's it's so complex and it's hard to talk about when we're you know I, I haven't had the experience so I can't say whether it is right or wrong but yeah. certainly different yeah so menstrual sex was also forbidden ah. um, because again of the contagious nature but you don't make babies yeah no, can't do that. it so you, we also see this not just in the book of Leviticus um, there's similar teachings in the Quran uh, also in the Quran like women aren't allowed to perform prayer when they're menstruating oh, wow. and I've also seen that in I know in orthodox cultures as well women who are menstruating aren't allowed to take communion or kiss any of the icons like oh, that's wow. like a really common thing you walk into the church you kiss yeah, the yeah, icons yeah. you're not allowed to do that if you're right. on your period but again, kind of going back to that interpretation thing, apparently I know I've heard about with the Orthodox practice that they don't want you taking communion, for example, because you're in a time of mourning, like anyone who's bleeding wow. shouldn't be having communion. Wow. So, so if you've even just hurt yourself, wow. yeah, you shouldn't be taking it because your body is repairing. Interesting. Which I was really interesting. Yeah. Is that because communion is with wine and like alcohol isn't good for your repair? Maybe. Maybe the priest is just looking out for us. <laughs> a little blood cells. We're just checking in on our alcohol consumption and making sure that we're not doing ourselves a disfavour. <laughs> they give you the spoon. They're like, mm, you know what? No, don't do that. You smell it on your breath already. <laughs> Interesting. Um, there's also, it, like I was saying, that 
the there are so many similarities across various religions with um these different practices uh even in i think hinduism mm. um women uh need to be there's the idea that they need to be purified before they can return to normal life oh. um so that includes separation mm-hmm. and i assume some different rituals but yeah. Yeah, it's it's crazy how widespread these ideas are. Yeah. You know? And it makes sense why there's a really common theme around the world of this stigma against menstruation. So now let's move on to philosophy. Ooh. This is where it gets really fun. <laughs> and some of this, I just couldn't help but giggle while I was reading it. So now we're moving forward to around 350 BC. Uh-huh. And you've got the philosopher Aristotle. Great. Who contrasted women's sexual differences to men. By saying that men's souls were more active than women's. Okay, right, yeah. So he went on to say that the active energy in the blood of men was able to transform blood into sperm. And just stick with me here. Okay. <laughs> I mean, you're the science student, but oh. my minimal science knowledge is like, I just don't think they're the same I don't, thing. Yeah. It's not. Anyway, okay, yeah, let's speak energetically. Right, yeah. Right, yeah. And then he considered sperm mm. to have more force than menstrual blood. Okay. So, look, yeah, sperm sperm go pretty quick. They're more than like, you know, how the menstrual blood just kind of... Yeah. Like drip. And, <laughs> you know, sperm, do, if we're talking about conception, it's half of the embryo. Yeah. And menstrual blood, I guess, is just the home yeah. for the embryo. Yeah. So Nature or nurture. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> but... So a really common theme in um, Aristotle's work is that he viewed women's souls as having less energy. So that was like the big difference between men and women. But because women had less energy, it meant that because the blood cannot sufficiently be fermented, didn't know blood needs. Were they trying to make it a drink? Are we kombucha? (laughs) Um, (laughs) Menstrual kombucha? Menstrual kombucha? New product range. (laughs) Oh. I don't think it would sell. (laughs) Leave us a comment if you'd buy it. (laughs) Head over to our socials, let us know. Um, So because the blood can't be fermented, it becomes menstrual menstrual blood, which leaves the body with little energy. Oh, so he's saying it should be fermented inside the body. Yeah. Oh. So because I think the idea is it goes straight to like um, pregnancy. So because you couldn't get pregnant that month, um, your blood has less energy and it's menstrual blood now. Right. Yeah. So I guess like, I guess back in, what are we, 350 BC, it's all about fertility, isn't it? It's all yeah. about popping out children. Really, like I, I would maybe when you get your first period, you're considered to be of age to have a baby. Mm. And I guess maybe that was the goal. Yeah. It makes sense because they wouldn't have understood, like they don't have – tests then of like your different hormone levels and understanding different phases of the cycle maybe Mm -hmm. to the sense that we would now um yeah in a different form yeah Mm. um so yeah I feel like this is very fertility centric yes yeah yeah. and I guess in that age perhaps women's role was were to make babies and if big old baby makers yeah um, and then we have another philosopher, Hippocrates, who defines women in terms of what man is not. So uh-huh. <laughs> this, is, this one got me. <laughs> <laughs> 
the weakness of a woman's body is what caused menstruation. Good, yeah. But then you have Aristotle who believed it was the production of women's menstrual blood that caused women physical weakness. So that one makes more sense. Okay, yeah, because... I feel like I'm more on Aristotle's side. Like, I get tired on my period. Yeah. Um, Hippocrates, mate. I think he forgot that he exists because of periods. Maybe they don't know that. Yeah. No, but I don't know. You can't... Without periods, no one would exist, including you, Hippocrates. Is that his name? (laughs) Including you, big hippo. (laughs) Hippo, is that his nickname? But it is now. Oh, hippo. <laughs> hippo, mate, let's sit down. You wouldn't be alive without ble- without periods. Yeah. It's true. Um, but it is, when you kind of think about it, you know, defining women as what man is not. I mean, in some ways, we are what man is not in a good way. Like, yeah. The things that a kind lot of, of men. are kind of throwing me out. Yeah. yeah. As in we fill the gaps. We fill the gaps of what they're, lack- what they're lacking, not what we're lacking. Yeah. But also we don't fill the we – are, we are the thing with the gap. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that this part is, is anti-feminist. My, my brain – yeah, this is going anti-feminist but also anti-men. <laughs> and I don't know which train I want to jump on. Uh, anyway, <laughs> let's move over to Rome, shall yeah, we? Yeah, let's move to Rome. So we have the Roman philosopher. His name is Gaius Plinius Secundus. Gaius Plinius Secundus. Yes. And this is in around 50 AD, so this is after Christ now. Right. Um, he wrote a book called Pliny the Elder. Pliny the Elder. And it's all about how menstrual blood has poisonous effects. Oh, interesting. Um, Does, no. And it causes damage upon contact. Upon contact. Yeah. Like like lava. Like acid. Like, yeah. Um, what? So Gaius says that this is this – is, This is getting witchy. Wait, just wait for this quote. This is super witchy vibes. Yes. Gaius says – Contact with it turns new wine sour. Crops touched by it become barren. Grafts die. Seeds in gardens are dried up. The fruit of trees fall off. The bright surface of mirrors in which it is merely reflected is dimmed. The edge of steel and the gleam of ivory are dulled. (laughs) Hives of bees die. Even bronze and iron are at once seized by rust and a horrible smell fills the air. To taste it drives dogs mad and infects their bites with an incurable poison. Meanwhile, 2021, <laughs> women are putting their menstrual cup blood into their pot plants <laughs> so it grows better. <laughs> it looks like um, Gaius here should have been doing some experiments <laughs> with his blood. <laughs> Who pissed him off? Why is he so angry about menstrual blood? Do you know what I want to know, though? What? Why did he have to say that if... <laughs> Dogs taste it, they'll go mad. What dog <laughs> is licking menstrual blood? No, yeah. You, dogs love bodily fluids and tissues. What, yes, what, you they just do. spread your legs and no. your dog has a lick. <laughs> <laughs> We've gone from anti feminist to. Um, <laughs> what's that? What do you like? Incessant dogs? <laughs> We've gone from anti-feminist to bestiality. <laughs> to bestiality. No, Not that's bestiality. what I'm saying. This is weird. It is weird. But I am pointing out that, like, if you've got a snotty tissue in the bin, dog's going to pick it up. Oh, okay. Sure. Tissues, yeah. Um, tish- okay, yeah. Not, Not straight just- from the orifice. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was also hilarious, the 
the bright of mirrors in which menstrual blood is reflected is dimmed. Like I don't understand that. Is there mirrors back then? Must have been. I guess so. (coughs) I just think it's quite ironic that there's so much about like um, fruitful crop and all the rest when the fruit of the human race lies at the period. You know, it's quite hypocritical. It's within our loins. (laughs) Yeah. Ah, that quote, that gets me every time. Now we are jumping forward quite far ahead to the the 19th century. To the future. (laughs) 19th century. (laughs) Period. Blood is drunk. (laughs) So now, yeah, now we're jumping forward. (laughs) Now we're jumping forward to the 19th century where medical practitioners were of the opinion that if menstruation did not occur in women, the retained blood would cause major problems for the woman. Now that doesn't sound too bad at first Mm. because it like technically isn't that healthy if you're not menstruating in a lot of circumstances. Yes, yeah. But if menstruation ceased, there were procedures either to rid the woman of her menstrual blood or else bring about its onset. And the way that this Mm. is done is by putting leeches onto the inner thigh or genitals of the woman or else the cervix. Oh. Yeah. This is in a medical... What? Like, this is what doctors were doing. This was a procedure yeah. that they would prescribe for someone that didn't bleed. Yeah. Or, uh, what about, was that like every menopausal woman? Literally. <gasps> or, or I feel like they would have, wouldn't have done it then. I think they would understand then that it stops. Oh. But like what if you had PCOS at the time and you had yeah. no idea and your period oh was so irregular? Yeah. Um, you would have leeches attached to you. Mm-hmm. So, like, one of the orders in this book was um, four leeches to the cervix and a hot bath afterwards, rest in bed and poultices to the abdomen. What does that mean? What like, are poultices? Let's like do a live Google pressing. search. Poultices. Far out. Oh, Pult- my gosh. Can you imagine? Oh, oh. So, they went to bed with leeches in, on their cervix? Yeah. <gasps> so, poultices are a soft mass... A soft, moist mass of material, typically oh. flour, herbs, or bran, that are applied to the body to relieve soreness and inflammation. Oh. Of course, you'd be sore if you had a leech on your Four cervix. Four leeches on your cervix? Yeah. Now, this is the real kicker here oh, with no. this book. The book is called Clinical Memoirs on the Disease of Women. So, when did menstruation become a disease? That's my question. It's not. It's not. <laughs> I, just, I, I don't know what to, uh, like, because this podcast is about the history of menstruation. I want to know, like, what happened for everyone to be like, oh, this is disgusting and this is now something unnatural. Or is it just that people really didn't understand that periods are related to making, like, reproduction? Because even mammals have menstrual cycles as well mm. and you know why why was it so how did we th- how how did we come to that conclusion that doesn't yeah. make any sense so in victoria's book they talked about um and compared the occurrence of menstruation in women with the occurrence of they called it estrus in animals which i'm assuming is like is like periods yeah animals and they were saying menstruation occurs in female anim- animals but not in none of them so great as a scale as in women. 
is that because they have fewer period, fewer cycles, right? Because animals, well, like my housemate's dog, for example, yeah. is one. She's only had one period, and that was like mm. five months ago, maybe. Well, yeah, they were saying that um, in like they call them she goats. She goats. <laughs> <In> she goats. <laughs> when breeding season has arrived, it appears before they co- copulate, which I'm I'm assuming um, is make make, make babies. babies. So yeah, I, I feel like either people were trying to associate the way that female humans were menstruating mm. compared to animals, mm. but then no one else, I feel like no one just took the time. That's what doesn't make sense to me. This occurred to so many people on earth. Yeah. And yet. Like no half one, the population. Yeah. No one took the time to delve a little bit further other than going, yeah. she's crazy on her period. Like, that's where it stopped. It's so interesting. Like, I can't help but put my nasty little feminist hat on. And just, it doesn't make sense that it was never considered to be normal. Mm. And it makes more sense just because surely people weren't so stupid not to realise that it was a natural process. Yeah. And that, and, you know, associate the disease. Surely it was used as a bit of a tool to, to, you know, keep the men running, running the place. Oh, 100%. Because if there were no, you know, bright, shiny advocates in history to make menstruation more of a neutral, normal discussion, mm. like maybe everyone who didn't have a period was just, you know, went with what they were told and then just never listened to women for a yeah. long time. Well, to be honest, we can kind of see that still yeah. happening. Yeah. Look, we could we could talk about um, the countless examples over history uh, of the discrimination and like false ideologies that have come about about menstruation. But this actually segues perfectly into the next part of our podcast, um, where we're going to be discussing how these taboos still live on today in an area of society which is built on justice and fairness, yep. which is our legal system. Yeah. Um, so today we're chatting to Associate Professor Beth Goldblatt from the University of Technology, Sydney. Beth and her colleague, Dr. Linda Steele, wrote a paper in 2019 titled Bloody Unfair, Inequality Related to Menstruation, Considering the Role of Discrimination Law. Beth is going to step us through how the law continues to play a part in upholding these discriminatory taboos around menstruation and how we as modern women continue to be affected by it. This is such an interesting interview and we had such a pleasure chatting with Beth. So we hope you enjoy. Thank you so much for agreeing to come on today. We're so excited to hear. I came across your paper uh, and I was just blown away by the in, like how much research that you had done into the topic. And, and I was I just couldn't believe some of the statistics and the facts that you had included. So, yeah, we're so excited to talk to you. Mm. Yeah, no, no, no worries. I mean, um, yeah, it's been really fascinating research for us as mm, well. Yeah. So I, I guess we'll just jump into our, our first question, which is could you just explain how the law has ignored or hidden the issue uh, of discrimination against menstruators? Yeah, so um, the, the law internationally and in Australia has tended to recognise um, certain aspects of our human experience, our embodied experience, and totally ignore others. And menstruation is a really good example of um, a legal silence, as it were, something that's 
that's just not visible in the law because um, in, in a sense, it's, it's as if society pretends it doesn't exist. Um, and we see that in a lot of different ways, um, but we also, um, we, we recognize that, um, that things are changing um, and, and there have actually been legal changes. So for example, the tampon tax um, is, is a law that um, discriminated against menstruators by you know, imposing a, a tax on menstrual products, um, but through activism and advocacy, um, that that has actually changed. So that is a good example of where law has resulted in um, improvements in the lives of menstruators. But I think there are a lot of gaps still in the law in terms of uh, women and girls and other menstruators' experiences in schools, in the workplace, um, in prisons, um, in in various institutions uh, where menstruation can still lead to um, discrimination and inequality and where the law needs to do more. Do you have an example of another, I guess, human biological function that is supported by law that might be a good, you know, comparison to how ridiculous it is that menstruation isn't something that's considered? Yes, well, well, certainly uh, women have had to fight for recognition of their bodies um, in the law. So um, it, it, certainly the issue of pregnancy um, has is something that, that women have had over the last century, had to fight um, to have recognised in the law, um, although, you know, it's obvious that that, um, that women become pregnant. And, and, and humans birth. create humans. <laughs> you would think, yeah, I think it was obvious, but... But um, it's, it's been very difficult for the law to understand that by treating somebody differently because they're pregnant is actually unfair. Mm. Um, and so you have the, the history in America um, of um, this strange situation um, where sex discrimination was illegal, but the law really struggled to work out how pregnancy fitted into that because um, they felt like there wasn't a, a male comparator. So it was a very comparative understanding of discrimination. So unless you had um, a man who was discriminated against because he was pregnant, <laughs> you couldn't say it was sex discrimination. Now, that is absurd, but that is the, the way that the law has struggled to deal with is this issue. And in America, what they did was they said, let's compare a pregnant woman with a man who has an illness. Right. Uh, and then and then somehow the court can understand um, what it means to to have discrimination. Um, <laughs> and of course, that's deeply problematic because it's treating a normal biological function um, as some as some kind of um, illness. Um, and, and of course, it's not com comparable. Mm. Um, the same problem has occurred with menstruation. So we've seen also a case in America where a woman um, was dismissed from her work for um, excessive bathroom breaks and for bleeding on her um, office furniture. Um, and was um, the court had to try and compare her to a man who um, had some kind of um, illness that meant he had to go to the bathroom often, like somebody with diarrhea or something like that. Oh. And, um, I guess it illustrates the absurdity um, of the inability of the law to understand that 
menstruation is a human experience yeah. that a large part of the population uh, encounters on a regular basis and the law has to be better at understanding it. Wow, interesting. Do you think, um, this is a kind of left field question, but do you think because uh, people's biology, if they are someone that menstruates, doesn't, you know, fit into the law strictly. Do you think that has a flow on effect to legal rights of women in a general context as well? Or do you think that there are, you know, separate fields of, of law to improve for, for equality? Or do you think maybe, you know, they're kind of grouped into a similar? I do think, um, yeah, look, I think so pregnancy, um, breastfeeding, uh, menstruation, obviously all are elements of um, the reproductive uh, process. Um, and they do, I mean, they, you know, we do acknowledge that it's not only um, uh, cis women who menstruate, but, um, you know, if we're talking in terms of the, the large majority, um, it would be women's biological, you know, reproductive process. Um, so, yes, there are connections between those things, but they also have different dimensions. And so it's important also not to just totally lump them together um, and and to try and find ways of law accommodating and recognising the different aspects of the, the human biological experience. Just and sorry, I would add to that also um, menopause, so, oh, yeah. uh, which is also something that's a, a receiving increased attention of late. Um, and, yeah, while well, I said earlier that we need to um, not medicalise um, menstruation and treat it as an illness, we also have to recognise that there are certain illnesses related, like endometriosis, to, um, to the menstrual cycle. And, um, you know, we need to also find ways of accommodating um, that as well, possibly differently from the way we deal with other um, illnesses because of the issues of stigma um, attached to to women's bodies and bleeding. In your paper, you discussed several examples of how the inequality related to menstruation is particularly worse for um, and used examples of female prisoners, people with disabilities, and uh, transgender people. I, I know I was particularly shocked by the fact that sterilisation of women with disabilities is still lawful in some situations. Can you explain um, what the process of sterilisation is and why it is still considered lawful in some cases? Right, so so sterilisation is a medical procedure and it can take different forms, but effectively it's to prevent somebody from being able to um, become pregnant but can also have the impact of um, ending your your menstruation. So it can actually um, also be used um, not only to prevent pregnancy, but to stop um, stop women from menstruating at all. And where this um, relates to the issue of disability is that um, that we have cases in Australia of girls and women with disabilities. Um, usually uh, cognitive um, disabilities, where they, um, their guardians, their parents, um, people who have some kind of legal responsibility in relation to them, have been able to approach the court um, for permission to sterilise those girls or women. Um, and effectively, that, that 
means they haven't given consent to these procedures being performed. And yet the courts, um, in some instances, have been prepared to uh, allow those procedures to continue anyway. And some of the reasons that the courts have given for that is it's more convenient for the carers and the parents who look after um, these girls or women um, to manage their menstruation. Um, there's issues of fear about um, women and girls being sexually abused and becoming pregnant and not being able to then manage the consequences of that. Those are all given as the reasons. But I think what gets lost in all of that is the, the harsh impact of um, sterilization or menstrual suppression on girls and women, women with disabilities who for the rest of their lives may then um, suffer the trauma of not just the procedure, but the feeling that they have been told that they are not entitled um, to become pregnant, to bear children, um, because they're somehow seen as lesser than, than able-bodied people. Mm. It's so shocking to think that someone can just have that right taken away from them. And, of course, there are situations where, it, like you said, it's either convenient for the carers or it might even be in the best interests of, um, of, the, of the girl, but it's just a bit of a hard pill to swallow, especially mm-hmm. in some cases where I'm sure the girls can give consent, but maybe in the eyes of the court they're not considered to have you know, that, the, the mental capacity to do so. So it's such a grey area, but... Mm-hmm. Um, I think something that can really be improved, mm. definitely. Mm, mm. And certainly it's something that the rest of the world thinks Australia could do better on because mm. we've had a numerous um, recommendations from the United Nations, different human rights bodies, um, urging Australia to revisit its approach to this issue because it's seen as a severe human rights violation. Um, and I would certainly agree with that. Mm. Wow, and what are some of those reforms that they have suggested? Well, I think very simply that that anything that um, <laughs> relates to a person's body is subject to their own consent, mm-hmm. and that we have to um, we 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 can, we cannot you know violate a human beings' right to make decisions about their own bodies, um, and you know the Australian courts need to understand that they have to do far better at, um, you know, finding ways of listening to the voices of people with disabilities. Wow. Yeah, that's quite an obvious thing to introduce into a legal system that we all, all trust. And I guess it's quite shocking as well to think about how modern and advanced we are in, in some of our understanding and perhaps advocacy, um, but if, the, you know, the law isn't up to date to our belief then how representative is that of of our requests? Are there any other, um, I guess, modern implications on on the lack of, um, I guess, equality and menstrual suppression that we have in our system that does affect a modern woman of Australia? I think you know, often we can we can say that we can't relate to that um, experience or oppression, but I guess. Yeah, do you have any insight into how it is important for modern women to to really consider how they can have an influence in this sphere? Certainly, I think the inequalities are very real for for most of us. Um, So, I mean, certainly we have students um, at our universities who um, struggle sometimes to attend class um, because of of their menstrual 
um, pain. We have um, students who sit in on exams and, and then struggle to complete those exams, but but also struggle to ask for um, special consideration or, or uh, are embarrassed to speak to the lecturer about attending class. Uh, the same would occur in schools. So I think that kind of discrimination, even if it's not an overt uh, legal thing, is very present as an inequality facing people, you know, every day in this country. Um, and similarly in the workplace as well. I think there are many situations where uh, women might struggle to um, to ask for accommodations, to ask for um, different working conditions that will allow them to accommodate their, their um, menstrual cycles or the, the side effects that, that they, they might have. So um, I think we've got a long way to go, both in terms of, of formal, um, you know, equality measures, but also in terms of using the law to ensure that special um, provisions are, are built into workplaces, schools, um, that actually acknowledge the reality of, of women's bodies. Mm. Great. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, Beth, that's all the questions that we have for you today. That was absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much. I, I, this is, sorry, just a side question, but I'm just wondering what was it about this topic in particular that um, made you want to conduct your research in it? Um, I guess I'm, I've always been interested in uh, poverty and disadvantage and um, how that affects um, men and women differently. So the gender dimensions of poverty and, and I guess, um, you know, when I started um, hearing about um, the, the tax issue, but also um, homelessness, um, you know, and, and how um, women um, are, you know, struggling to access basic, you know, products or facilities. Um, you know, I, I just realised it all overlaps, doesn't it? Mm. There's so many connections between um, gender discrimination and oppression, um, broader economic inequality and poverty, um, and, and then how we see the body within that. So it, it just seemed like um, a sort of fascinating entry into those issues for me. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that aligns so perfectly with um, what we believe here at Taboo and all the work that we're doing. So yeah. this is just, we're just so excited that we've been able to have you on. So thank you so much again for joining us. No worries. Um, Keep up the good work. It sounds like you're doing amazing stuff. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today for this episode of The Flow by Taboo Period Products. Please leave a review of our podcast and give us a rating. It really helps us as well when you share it with your friends. Follow us at Taboo Period Products and we'll be posting stories and question boxes on the topics we discussed today. So head over to our Instagram and join the conversation. We'll be back in your ears next week, but in the meantime, enjoy your flow. Enjoy your flow.